This evening's talk is about kama, or karma in Sanskrit. And beginning uh, with words from the Buddha, all beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. And I'd like to begin by saying something that I've found to be very helpful and supportive throughout the various phases and stages of my practice over the years. As I began to connect with and more deeply understand the teaching of Kama. And this is that the teaching, the teaching of Kama, offers and brings to an ever clearer light a path of practice that isn't based on fear or belief of any higher authority but rather founded on a clear understanding of the natural law of cause and effect as it relates to all things as it relates to all phenomena and particularly as it relates to human behavior. Consequently, the teaching on kama is not so much something to be believed in as it is to be understood as we come to see and to know it in operation. As a Western woman, I think that I can safely say say this for most all of us all of us who have been primarily uh, been brought up and conditioned in Western-oriented countries. I can say that it's been kind of a relief for me to discover that it turns out that kama is not some unreachable or some strange concept. The teaching relevancy and understanding of kama, which is one of Buddhism's central themes, is really quite accessible and actually even quite ordinary. And maybe even so ordinary that it somehow might elude our very complicated minds. So what is kama? Etymologically, or the root word of kama, is action, or deed, as it's often translated. In the context of the Dhamma, it's defined more specifically and clearly as action based on intention. Another way of looking at it and understanding uh, this is action based on motivation. In English, the word motivation has a somewhat deeper and subtler meaning than intention. The motivation in the mind behind or the motivation in the mind underneath or preceding the intention. 
motivation or intention is what leads to deeds willfully done, deeds done through volition. In the Buddha's teaching, kama refers only to intentional or volitional action. Intentional or willful action is the mental factor responsible for kama. So kama is intention, which includes will, choice, and decision. The mental impetus, which leads to actions, both creative and destructive actions. This is the essence of kama. And from the Buddha, words from the Buddha. Monks, it is intention, I say, that is kama. Having willed, we create kama through body, speech, and mind. There are two sorts of volitional action that come from two flavors of motivation or intention. Wholesome motivation, wholesome intention, leads, to, leads us to choose to act or to speak in a wholesome way. And unwholesome motivation or unwholesome intention leads us to decide to act or to speak in an unwholesome way. So we could say wholesome intention or wholesome motivation is wholesome karma. And unwholesome intention is unwholesome karma. Karma is a law of nature, the way of things, the law of cause and effect, cause and result. So, for instance, just like uh, a rubber ball that's thrown against a wall bounces back, skillful, unskillful, or neutral intention and action generates inevitable consequences. The law of kama is one of the fundamental natural laws through which we create vastly different realities. As we experientially, through our own direct immediate experience, begin to understand the law of kama, how these consequences are created, combined, and intensified throughout our life is clarified. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, it's more important to understand kama than emptiness. Something that I've discovered by way of my own deep practice uh, to be really quite amazing and illuminating is that in the context of the teachings and in our practice of the Dhamma, intention has a much subtler meaning than it commonly has in the way it's used and understood in everyday English. We usually, I think most of us usually think of intention as the link between internal and internal thought and its resultant external actions, such as, I did that intentionally. Or we might ask, is that 
really what you meant to say. The Buddhist teaching tells us that all actions, speech, and all thought, no matter how fleeting, as well as the responses of the mind, the heart, to the various experiences and sensations uh, received through each of the sense doors, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind, that all of this, without exception, contains elements of intention. This means that the mind subtly, or sometimes not so subtly, volitionally or willfully chooses objects of awareness and reaps the karmic fruit of these choices. So in other words, intention is the factor which leads the mind to turn towards or to turn away from various potential objects of awareness. Intention is the factor which leads the mind, leads the heart to proceed or not proceed in a particular direction. From this perspective, it's intention that guides or governs how the mind, how the heart responds to stimuli. As our practice deepens, we begin to see and to know more and more clearly through our own direct experience that intention is the force, we could say, that organizes the movements of the mind. Which means that intention is a primary aspect of what determines the states that are experienced by the mind, by the heart. The Buddha spoke many times about the fact that motivation, that the motivation or the intention that leads to action is the mental impetus that is the determinant of our karmic fruit. In other words, the motivation, the intention that leads to actions is what determines the result of our action. So again, basically this is the teaching of cause and effect, or cause and result. Inherent in each intention or motive in the mind, in the heart, no matter how subtle, is an energy that is powerful enough to bring about subsequent results. It's possible to actually experience this process occurring when mindfulness is accompanied by a clear, deep, and strong momentary concentration. And even on a very subtle level, when clear, strong mindfulness is accompanied by a well-developed access concentration. So, in light of this, consider that even just one tiny thought that might not even be a particularly important thought isn't without consequence, some consequence. 
it will result in at least a tiny speck of kama that's added to the stream of conditions which shape one's mental activity. It's this, if this speck is practiced repeatedly over and over again in the mind or expressed repeatedly through some external expression in speech or in actions, the result, the karmic result, is strengthened in the form of one's character traits. And even through our bodily makeup, such as various physical expressions and even of physical features, as well as in the form of our various verbal and active responses or reactions in relationship to the outer world. Even the responses and the reactions that come to us, that we in a sense draw to us from external sources, can sometimes, as we know, show up in similar repetitive ways and be strengthened when we're unaware, when we're not mindful, and are repeatedly acting out of uh, acting out or practicing the specks of mental kama that add to the stream of conditions that shape our mental activity. There's a Tibetan teaching that says something like, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Or we could say, everything rests on the tip of intention. A painful or destructive kama, a painful or destructive intention, doesn't have to be on a gross level for it to be effective. I remember once many years ago when I was sitting a retreat, uh, I got a note that was not at all pleasing to me. So I proceeded, uh, after I read it, to angrily tear up the piece of paper that the note was written on. And even though that little piece of paper had absolutely no importance in and of itself, the action certainly had some effect on the quality of my mind, on the quality of my heart. In contrast to this, uh, much more recently, uh, just today here uh, at the retreat, I took a notice off the noteboard down in the dining room that had expired. And with a very neutral uh, state of mind, I simply crumpled up the piece of paper and threw it away. With that action producing a very different effect on the quality of mind, on the quality of my heart. If we repeatedly act out of angry intention, the effects of this type of accumulation will become clearer and clearer and may develop to a more and more significant level. In the chain of, or the wheel of, dependent origination, which is sometimes called the wheel of interdependent arising, which is the process of how the experiences of dukkha, or the experiences of ease that we have via the six sense doors, how they come to be, how they manifest, 
and then how they cease to be. Kama, specifically in terms of intention, is called the agent which fashions the mind. In light of this discussion, I'd like to uh, read some words from Thai Buddhist scholar Venerable Peyuto. This is from his book, Good, Evil, and Beyond, Kama in the Buddha's Teaching. Consider the specks of dust which come floating unnoticed into a room. There isn't one speck which is void of consequence. It's the same for the mind. But the weight of that consequence, in addition to being dependent on the amount of mental dust, is also related to the quality of the mind. For instance, the specks of dust which alight on a road surface have to be of a very large quantity before the road will seem to be dirty. Specks of dust that alight onto a floor, although of a much smaller quantity, may make the floor seem dirtier than the road. A smaller amount of dust accumulating on a tabletop will seem dirty enough to cause irritation. An even smaller amount alighting on a mirror will seem dirty and will interfere with its functioning. A tiny speck of dust on a spectacle lens is perceptible and can impair vision. In the same way, motivation or intention, no matter how small, is not void of fruit. As the Buddha said, all kama, whether wholesome or unwholesome, bears fruit. There's no kama, no matter how small, which is void of fruit. In the same way, the mind has varying levels of refinement or clarity, depending on accumulated kama. As long as the mind is being used on a coarse level, no problem may be apparent. But if it is necessary to use the mind on a, refli- on a refined level, previous unskillful kama even on a minor scale, might be an obstacle. There's a wonderful section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya, uh, called Connected Discourses in the Woods, a few of which I offer, offered in an earlier talk during this retreat, where various woodland-dwelling devas approach and speak to certain monks who are practicing in those same woodland thickets. And I'd like to share just a part of one of these same short dialogues, again, as an illustration regarding uh, what we're exploring this evening. And this is the verse about a bhikkhu, uh, a monk who, after returning from his daily alms rounds and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, he would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. When the deva who lived in that same woodland thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. 
Let me draw near and reproach him, she thought. So, out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency in the monk to practice, the deva addressed the monk as follows. And this is just a section from this sutta called The Thief of Scent. And the deva is speaking to the monk. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu, the monk, responds, I do not take, I do not damage, I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers. One who, with such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experiences of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions. The, our actions of thought, of speech, and of deed, right here and now, in this lifetime, in this very day, and on back and back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We're born, we spring out of the womb of kama, we could say. And even though we may or we may not like it at various times, we are undeniably the heirs of our kama. So, for instance, a very ordinary and practical example as soon as we've spoken words or as soon as we've performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet it remains with us. And in some way, inevitably returns to us as what we could be called our due inheritance. So what does this mean? We could say that with everything that happens and the resultant ease or dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, that this ease or dis-ease is the outcome, meaning the response or the reaction of our own mind's relationship to all of the internal and all of the external happenings that we experience. In other words, Our suffering and our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our motivations, our intentions, and the consequent actions, meaning our wholesome responses or unwholesome reactions to internal and external phenomena. Our ease and happiness or dis-ease and suffering is not due to our wishes, our hopes, our dreams for ourselves. 
and not do to another person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly mysterious, strange or foreign world. And from His Holiness the Dalai Lama again. Happiness is not something ready-made. It comes from your own actions. As awakening beings, our practice continues to develop our capacity to see the truth of how things occur, how things unfold, and to see their nature. As this comes clearer and clearer through our direct experience within our body-mind continuum, we quite naturally find that the intentions, the motivations in the mind more and more often lead to wholesome response, creative choices, rather than unwholesome, reactive, destructive choices. In its powerful potential to bring good or bad results, kama can be compared to food. Some foods are good, bringing and promoting health when we eat them, if we eat them at the right time and in the right amount. And some foods are harmful and bring disease, disease. And they might even be poisonous for us, might even be deadly. So we pay attention to the thoughts and the intention behind or underneath the potential action and feed ourselves and feed ourselves in healthy food and also thus we feed others healthy food and consequently we're creating healthy kama. One of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment. Fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and to live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama, and that in this knowing we can and we do actively create and fashion our life, and that the more clearly we know our motivations, know our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. The understanding of the law of kama and living our understanding offers us the potential experience of a sense of inner peace and a sense of well-being and wholeness. If we live in ignorance, meaning ignoring or misunderstanding the way of things, we're living in conflict and disharmony with the way of things. And so we're bound to experience fear, anguish, grief, dissonance, and confusion. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear 
when in fact with everything that happens within us and around us, we begin to see that we really only meet ourselves. Really, we only meet our own mind. What is there to fear? The heart, the mind, has then an opportunity and begins to relax, to begin to relax. And we begin to know, as I mentioned the other evening, we, can be, we do begin to know that we can change our mind. We really, truly begin to know that we're not trapped, running around and around on the karmic wheel. It's as though we're all artists, but instead of canvas and paint, or clay, marble, or music, or pencil, pen, and paper as our creative medium. It's our very mind, body, and heart. And the immediacy of our life experience that are the materials for our creative expression. And so again, one of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners, the heirs of our kama, and that in knowing this, we can and we do actively create and fashion our life, and that the more we clearly know our motivations, our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. The Buddha considered mental kama to be the most important and far-reaching in its effect. Because as well as mental kama being what shapes our inner reality, thought precedes all of our actions of body and speech. The flavor of our thoughts, wholesome or unwholesome, are conditioned by our intentions, conditioned by our motivations. Our motivations are conditioned by our view, our understanding, with our views very often showing up as our beliefs and our preferences which is what direct our motivations, what direct our intentions, and the resultant thoughts, which potentially then flow out into words and actions. So, just simply and briefly, what does this mean? If we cling to the view, if we cling to the understanding of ourself, other beings, and things, and even situations, experiences, and places being independent, separate, and static, meaning unchanging. We're motivated by misunderstanding and ignorance. We're ignoring the truth of things. Consequently, we're motivated by what is called wrong view in the Buddhist teachings. With this wrong view, this misunderstanding, our intentions, our motivations are coming actually from a self-centered, disconnected, 
non-harmonious, unhealthy, unwholesome place and will inevitably bring suffering to ourself and others. If we have the wonder if we have the understanding, if one is experientially through practice growing into the understanding that ourselves, other beings, all things, situations, experience, experiences and places are all totally interdependent and arise only because of various causes and conditions coming together. And that in fact, the causes and conditions themselves are always also in flux. That nothing, no thing abides independently or separately or is static. Our intentions, our motivations come out of what is called right view. And so our thoughts and the subsequent flow of words and actions all come from a place of harmony and a lightness of being and are more and more often appropriately responsive in any given situation and consequently are beneficial in both overt and subtle ways in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others. And some words from the Buddha on right view from the Anguttara Nikaya. And he's uh, speaking, uh, speaking to his monks. Monks, yogis, when there is wrong view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, and mental kama created as a result of that view, as as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations, all are are productive of results that are undesirable, unpleasant, disagreeable, yielding no benefit, but conducive to suffering. On what account? on account of that pernicious view. It's like a margosa seed or the seed of a bitter gourd planted in moist earth. The soil and water taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into a bitter taste, an acrid taste, a foul taste. Why is that? Because the seed is not good. Monks, yogis, when there is right view, Bodily comma created as a result of that view. Verbal comma created as a result of that view. Mental comma created as a result of that view. As well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations. All are yielding of results that are desirable, pleasant, agreeable, producing benefit, conducive to happiness. On what account? On account of those good views. It is like a seed of the sugar cane, a seed of wheat, or a seed of fruit planted in moist earth. The water and soil taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into sweetness, into refreshment, into delicious taste. On what account is that? On account of that good seed. An important aspect of right view in relationship to what we call self, what we 
call me is at least in part uh, very often a reference to this body, this body of ours, as we explored uh, in an earlier Dhamma talk when we discussed that this body is actually not a solid something, but rather a process made up of many elements, with each and all of these elements being in continual flux. So, just briefly now, what I'm referring to are the experiential characteristics of the four elements that we come to know directly through our practice. So just a quick review of this in relationship to this discussion. The characteristics of the earth element are hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The characteristics of the water element are flowing and cohesion. The fire element, heat or warmth and coldness or coolness. And the wind or the air element, the characteristics are supporting and pushing. And all of these are available directly, experientially, in relationship to our body with a focused and mindful attention. This experiential, non-ordinary understanding of the body can be an important and illuminating step on the path to right view in relationship to directly, experientially understanding not-self, impersonality. It's in this light that the Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. Within what is essentially an impersonal karmic process, our actions are like the seeds that are planted and then transformed by the shifting patterns of our life. Some seeds are cultivated and nourished. Some seeds might lie dormant for many years, might lie dormant for maybe many lifetimes. And we can think of this in terms of heredity, actually. For Western minds, heredity is a more accessible idea than past lifetimes. So they may lie dormant for a long, long time until the exact combination of causes and conditions arise to germinate these seeds. And always the fruit will bear a direct relationship to the seed. A very obvious and clear metaphor that's often used is that apple seeds bring apple seeds, apples into the world. Lettuce seeds bring lettuce into the world. If we plant poppy seeds, no matter how much we might hope, lettuce will not grow from poppy seeds. A loving act at some point ends up bearing loving fruit. An angry or hateful act at some point produces hateful fruit. So, again, words from the Buddha that we began our evening with. All beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. 
An important and maybe obvious uh, point here is that not-self, impersonality, behind our actions, doesn't discount our responsibility for the things that we do. Kama is a very powerful force that inevitably makes itself felt. We need to couple our understanding of selflessness, not self, with a very mindful and respectful attention to our motivations and actions and their karmic fruit. When we begin to understand more deeply that kama is based on intention, based on motivation, we begin to see the enormous and important responsibility that we have to become aware of the intentions, to become aware of the motivations that precede our actions of mind, speech, and body. If we're unaware of the motives in our mind, when unwholesome, unskillful intentions arise, we may unmindfully act on them and consequently then create the conditions for immediate or future suffering. And from words from Padmasambhava, who is said to have been the person that brought Buddhist teachings to Bhutan and Tibet, though your vision is as vast as the sky, your attention to the law of Kama should be as fine as a grain of barley flour. Mindfulness of our own intentions before we speak or act, and also the awareness of the karmic fruit of our words and actions once they've been said and performed, has the effect of really, truly broadening our field of choice as we practice to purify and to transform our mind, heart, and actions so that we're not just running on automatic, not running on habitual ways of thinking, speaking, and acting. When we mindfully experience the effects of our actions, we see, for instance, that extending generosity, loving-kindness, extending compassion towards others comes back to us. And we see and we feel the effects of approaching the world with aggression, anger, judgment, greed, or grasping. An important point to consider in relationship to these teachings and practices is that, and this is, I think, very important actually, uh, is that it's not so important where your present suffering came from, but where you take it from here. Meaning, what's most important is how you approach the situation in, how you approach the situation of this very moment. So, for instance, the appropriate and healthy and wholesome response to suffering, whatever the cause of it may be, is compassion.
as we traverse this path through our practice, we clearly begin to see and to know that there's a refuge, so to say. A refuge where the suffering of confusion, fear, anger, resistance, discontent, clinging, it's quite a long list, can be dispelled. And that refuge is through our good deeds, which I mentioned the other evening. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome motivation, wholesome intentions, in thoughts and words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some sort of hardship in our current life. And again, as I mentioned the other day, this practice, this practice itself, this incredible training of the mind, of the heart, that we're all engaged in, is a very good deed, really the very best deed. And the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in and through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been uh, important for me over the years in understanding Kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. We've all probably heard uh, more or less, uh, been conditioned by things such as, well, been told, and thus conditioned by, well, too bad, it's too late, just too bad. Or, well, I'm just too old. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. These are not true, absolutely not true. It is never too late. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. And it becomes a refuge. And at some point, we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our mind, in our heart, the mind and heart become more tranquil and more serene. And through our practice, we gain the great strength of a calm, focused mind and a patient heart, and the growing evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties that come up in our practice, and that come up in our life as a whole. As this refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way, our deeds then become our friend rather than our adversary. Even if sometimes the immediate result of our deeds seem to bring us maybe some sorrow or some discomfort or maybe some pain, maybe 
through the way others treat us or through some upheaval or some turmoil in our life or maybe through some surprising or unrecognizable phenomena that might show up in our practice. And sometimes the results of our good deeds may not be at all what we expected, not what we had in mind. Results that are maybe feel or seem contrary to what we might think our intention, what we might think our motivation was. Many years ago I had a therapist who would uh, sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately say for me, at appropriate times in the therapy work that I was doing with her, she would say, for me, this isn't what I had in mind. (laughs) Which would actually always kind of stop me in my tracks and move me to take a look, to take a close look at my motivations and my expectations. And most importantly in those moments, to simply be with what was occurring with an open heart and as clear a mind as was possible at that time. If we make suffering our teacher, and then in a sense it does become our friend. And maybe it sometimes feels like it's quite a stern and in a certain way quite a demanding teacher. Yet potentially it's a truthful and well-intended friend. We learn about ourselves, which for almost all of us, if not all of us, seems to be our most difficult subject. The teachings of Kama and the understanding therein can imbue us with a powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering, to free ourselves in this very life from repeatedly being born, repeatedly being reborn into the realm of suffering. I'd like to um, read a section now from a book uh, that was uh, written by a man named Jacques Lucieran. Jacques Lucieran was uh, involved in the French underground movement during the Second World War. And this is a section from his autobiography that uh, very beautifully illuminates our discussion about Kama. It was a great surprise to me to find myself blind. And being blind was not all as I imagined it. Nor was it as the people around me seemed to think it. They told me that to be blind meant not to see. And yet how was I to believe them when I saw? Not at once, I admit, not in the days immediately after the operation. For at that time I still wanted to use my eyes. I followed their usual path. I looked in the direction where I was in the habit of seeing before the accident. And there was anguish, a lack, something like a void which filled me with what grown-ups call despair. Finally one day, and it was not long in coming, I realized that I was looking in the wrong way. It was as simple as that. I was making something very like the mistake people make who change their glasses 
without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. At this point, some instinct made me change course. I began to look more closely, not at things, but at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within, instead of clinging to the movement of sight towards the world outside. Immediately, the substance of the universe drew together, redefined and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me as within. But radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a fact, for light was there. I felt indescribable relief and happiness so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. I followed light and joy at the same moment, and I can say without hesitation that from that time on, light and joy have never been separated in my experience. I have had them or lost them together. I saw light and went on seeing it, though I was blind. I said so, but for many years I think I did not say it very loud. Until I was nearly 14, I remember calling the experience, which kept renewing itself inside me, my secret, and speaking of it only to my most intimate friends. I don't know whether they believed me, but they listened to me, for they were my friends. And I told them, and what I told them had greater value than being merely true. It had the value of being beautiful, a dream, an enchantment, almost like magic. The amazing thing was that it was not magic for me at all, but reality. I could no more have denied it than people with eyes can deny what that they see. I was not light myself, I knew that, but I bathed in it as an element which blindness had suddenly brought much closer. I could feel light rising, spreading, resting on objects, giving them form, then leaving them. Withdrawing or diminishing is what I mean, for the opposite of light was never present. Sighted people always talk about the night of blindness that seems to them quite natural. But there is no such night, for at every waking hour, and even in my dreams, I lived in a stream of light. Without my eyes, light was much more stable than it had been with them. As I remember it, there were no longer the same differences between things lighted brightly, less brightly, or not at all. I saw the whole world in light, existing through it and because of it. Still, there were times when the light faded, almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If, instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated, thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock, if I said to myself that all these things were hostile and about to strike, or scratch, then without exception, I hit or wounded myself. The only easy way to move around the house, the garden, or the beach was by not thinking about it at all, or thinking as little as possible. Then I moved between obstacles, the way they say bats do. What the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect throwing everything into confusion. The minute before, I knew just where everything in the room was. But if I got angry, things got angrier than I. 
They went and hid in the most unlikely corners, mixed themselves up, turned turtled, muddled like crazy men, and looked wild. As for me, I no longer knew where to put hand or foot. Everything hurt me. This mechanism worked so well that I became cautious. When I was playing with my small companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win, to be the first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing. Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly because as soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once a black hole opened and I was helpless inside it. But when I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony when I was young? I always knew where the road was open and where it was closed. I had only to look at the bright signal which taught me how to live. All of us, whether blind or not, are terribly greedy. We want things only for ourselves. Even without realizing it, we want the earth, the universe, to be like us and give us all the room in it. But a blind child learns very quickly that this cannot be. She or he has to learn it. For every time she or he forgets that she's not alone in the world, she or he strikes against an object, hurts herself, hurts himself, and is called to order. But each time she, he remembers, she is rewarded, he is rewarded, for everything comes her or his way. And closing the talk with some words from the Buddha. One should reflect repeatedly on one's own mind in this way. For a long time, the sanctity or purity of this mind has been destroyed by greed, by hatred, by delusion. It is by mental defilement beings are defiled. It is by mental purification that beings are purified. And the Buddha goes on to say, All conditions have mind as forerunner, mind as master, are accomplished by mind. Whatever one says or does with an unclear mind brings suffering in its wake, just as the cartwheel follows the ox's hoof. Whatever one says or does with a clear mind brings happiness in its wake, just as the shadow follows its owner. And let's sit silently for just a moment or two. 